the kindness and the sternness of God. Almighty King, today would you bring just a clear, simple understanding to our hearts regarding who you are and how you operate. Lord, take any confusion out of the picture. Make it plain to us. Lord, would you be lifted up today in this service? Open our eyes and our ears and our minds, but more, Lord, open our hearts to receive you. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. We are accustomed in our culture to thinking about God only in terms of his kindness. And because we're accustomed to thinking about only the kindness, we look for ice cream and cookies from God. We look for treats from God. We look for love from God. We look for acceptance. We look for peace of mind. We look for contentment. Unfortunately, the American mindset has been so warped that we see everything through the eyes of value added. What will this do for me? So, what did I get out of church? Many times I've heard people say to me, Pastor, I go to church, but I'm just not getting fed there. You know, like I'm going to church to get something. Now, some of you, I can see by your expressions, you're kind of shocked. Of course I went to church to get something. What do you think I go for? I'm a dummy? Now, do you understand? You didn't come here to get something today. If you came here to get something, you came for the wrong reason. The real reason, the biblical reason for your coming was to have something removed. You came here to lose something. Let me explain. Yesterday in our planting, I foolishly chose to wear a pair of white shorts, thinking they would be cool, you know, weather-wise. And when I got home, I did not have on white shorts. They were smeared with mud. They were filthy. I went to bed last night and my kind wife stayed up. When I got up this morning and got ready to go do my normal morning jog, I looked for my jogging clothes and lo and behold, right there with my jogging clothes was a beautiful white pair of shorts. I picked them up in absolute unbelief. I looked, there was not one smudge of dirt on that pair of shorts. Now, I don't know what she did to get them there, 
but I would guess it had something to do with soap and water and bleach and elbow grease. I know the condition they were in when I put them in the dirty clothes last night. It was not pretty. Well, what value did she add to those shorts? She added value by taking something away. She took the dirt out. You come here into the presence of God, you're not to come here for added value. You're here to have something removed from your heart. You have the rebellion, the self-centeredness, the idolatry, the unbelief, the self-importance. You're here to get something taken out of you. And if you leave as heavy as you were when you came in, you didn't get very much here. I sometimes think there should be a scale you should weigh in and weigh out. I don't know how much sin weighs, but it's quite a bit. You should go out of here much lighter than you came in. Because much should be removed from your soul by having sat and listened to the word of God. What do you add to something when you purify it? Nothing. It's what you remove that purifies it. So as I begin to share this message with you today, are you willing that something should be removed from your life? Now I'm saying this to you in advance of the word I need to preach. This is not the sermon. This is just the intro. What I'm asking you to do is take down your guard so that as you begin to feel something being removed from you, you don't grab it and say, God, you're a thief. By definition, God has to remove from us. And he's not stealing from us when he takes it. He's giving to us a blessing. So would you already then establish in your heart and your mind that as you hear this word today and you begin to feel something slipping away, you won't grab at it. You'll just let it go. Then you'll leave here light. You'll leave here not weighed down. You'll leave here rejoicing because the burden has been removed from your heart. Now for the word. Romans, the 11th chapter. We have here the story of the Apostle Paul being very concerned about the Jewish people. He sees that they have rejected the Lord And he's heartbroken over that. And he's insisting that the Jewish people are still God's people. They are still God's chosen people. And God will still redeem these people. And in his argument, he unveils a truth so astonishing. We need to look at it. Romans, the 11th chapter, let me begin reading for you in verse 17. 
if some of the branches have been broken off and we can give those branches names, Caiaphas, Annas. I mean, the branches are real people. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, and the you has real names, Susie, Sandy, Anne, Rosie, John, Richard, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches, those branches that were broken off. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. That comes as a shock to our American systems because we see ourselves as supporting the church. We see ourselves as supporting the radio broadcast. We see ourselves as supporting our families. We have the habit in America of envisioning ourselves as the foundation. The Lord is saying, do not support, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So the purpose of the church is not to give you something to support. The body of Christ is here to support you. The nourishing sap of God flows to the church. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Now, there are some words that we use so commonly in the Christian church that the words begin to just numb out like elevator music, and we no longer apply any sharp, crystal clear meanings to those words. Faith is one of those. Faith must rest on the will of God. Stay with me a moment. What is the basis of your faith? The only basis for faith is that it must rest on the will of God alone, not on my desire or on my wishes. If I say, I have faith that I'm going to get a new car, because I need a new car, that's frankly wishful thinking. I can call it faith until I'm blue in the face, 
but wishful thinking and faith are not the same things. Faith, in terms of a biblical understanding, always rests on the will of God, the will of God alone. So, until a person knows God's will, they have no basis for faith. Because faith is expecting God to do what we know it is his will to do. So if in the prayer closet I've come to a place, through the revelation of the word of God, I've come to a place where I understand and know what the will of God is regarding this situation, either by his promises, by his revelation, I know what God's will is regarding that. Now I have a basis for faith. Now I can say, I expect God to do what God wants to do. And I'm in agreement with him. And I'm now going to stand. I'm going to wait. And if I die waiting for God to do what I know God wants to do, it's all right. See, I'm not the foundation. And I don't use faith as some tool to try to reach into the spiritual realm and manipulate something over here by putting a picture of my new my new car up on the refrigerator and saying 10 times a day or 100 times a day, that's my car, that's my car, that's my car, and think that I'm going to somehow twist the spiritual realm to come into conformance with my spoken word and produce a car. That's witchcraft. That's not the biblical understanding of faith. The biblical understanding of faith is I know what God's will is, either through revelation, through personal promise, I know what God's will is, and now I stand that God will do what he said he would do. And I don't move. That's the basis for faith. And Paul is saying in the 11th chapter of the book of Romans that the Jewish people were broken off because of unbelief. They did not believe that God would do what God said he would do. And because of that, they were broken off. They lost their standing with God. Further, he's saying the only way you can have standing with God is to come into agreement with what you know God's will is to do. Now, it would be so much simpler if if this simply meant that, okay, God, you want to do that? I agree, you can do that. But that's not the way faith operates. Faith operates instead, okay, I know God wants to do that. God, here's all of my money to make that happen. God, here's all of my time to make that happen. Because I'm the body and you're the body. Jesus is the head, but he says we're the body. So the body has to not only agree that it's going to go where the head goes, it's going to have to agree that the hands of the body and the feet of the body and the whole function of the body is going to be in cooperation and not fighting against the head who is Jesus. So for me to say, 
I know what God's will is. I agree he can do it, but I'm going to go ahead with my hand, and I'm going to go another direction. What an ugly picture of the body of Christ. Stand by faith. And faith means that everything that is a part of my life is given to Jesus to accomplish what I know he wants to accomplish. It's not for me to boss. It's not for me to control. It's not for me to manipulate. It's for me to place my resources of time and energy and money, my life, into the hand of God and say to him, this is yours. Use it any way you choose. Now, this morning when I got up, you know what? My hand, when I went in and sat down in the study and began to turn the pages of Scripture, my hand did not say, I'm not turning those pages of Scripture. My head would have a hard time turning the pages. Have you tried to drive a car with your head? Go ahead and try it when you leave here, just in the driveway. I can see it now. Your head's down here trying to turn the steering wheel. (laughs) It's not going to work. No, my hand has to be in agreement with the body and has to be in agreement with the head so that there is a joint effort. This is the kind of faith Paul is talking about. Now, we're not going to get into it in depth today, but if you will read the 12th chapter of the book of Romans in preparation for where we're going on Thursday night, you'll discover this is exactly what Paul is talking about. He's talking about what is the body. How does it cooperate with the head as we stand by faith to move ahead? Now, look, let's be honest with each other. Most of us in this room would say we're not really connected very much anywhere. We blow wherever we want to blow and we go do whatever we want to do. And we come together with others when it's for our mutual benefit and value added. That's not the ecclesia. That's not the church. The church is the called out ones to be the body of Jesus Christ. How grotesque to see a foot laying out in the highway. We would call that roadkill. Many of you have spent your lives as roadkill. And it's time to turn aside from that, begin to stand by faith that God will accomplish what God wants to accomplish in this last day. One of you said to me, I have a sum of money. I'm not sure what to do with it. And my response was very simple. Do you believe that God has commissioned us to be on the radio? Yes. Do you believe that God wants to bring revival in this city? Yes. And where's the question? You understand? 
when we walk by faith, we come together in the Spirit and we cooperate with what Jesus wants to accomplish. And everything is available to do that. That's how we walk. Let's take it a step further. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So he's saying, you see how the Jewish people, many of them got broken off. The reason they got broke off is they were not in belief, in cooperation with what God wanted to accomplish. They got broken off. Now you who are grafted in and have begun to experience and enjoy the presence of God, and you've tasted of the sap, you've tasted of Jesus, be very careful. Don't be arrogant. Don't go your solitary way and think that God will forever allow you to do that. Be afraid. I love to go to the zoo, the National Zoo. And of course, I have one favorite place at the National Zoo, and that's at the huge tiger enclosed place where the big Siberian cats are sprawled out on the grass like kittens you could play with. But I'm also very blessed that there's a moat in between where that great cat is sprawled out, rolling on his back, acting like a tame cat. But there's a moat between me and that cat. I go fearlessly to look at him. I would not be so casual if there were no moat between me and that cat. I want to tell you there is no moat between you and God. He's much more dangerous than that great Siberian tiger. The kindness and the sternness of God. That's what Paul is saying here. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. See, we always talk about the wonderful gift of being brought into Christ. We need equally to talk about the great terror of being cut off from Christ. For both are true. There is both kindness and sternness. Kindness to those who are willing to continue to flow in the kindness of God. I'll tell you where the kindness of God is flowing. The kindness of God is flowing with the salvation of sinners. And when I take a faith stand with the salvation of men and women when I take a faith stand that all of my heart will be poured out in love for another person, that no sacrifice is too great 
for the salvation of one of God's children, when I take a faith stand on that, and I agree with God regarding the salvation of the lost, whether it's the Jewish people or we who are in America, the Gentiles, when I take a faith stand with God that he will save the lost, I'm in the kindness of God. when I take a position that I'm on my own and I'm the foundation and I'm going to make happen in my life what I need to make happen, be afraid. Because then I face the sternness of God. The kindness of God only flows with the purpose of God. And when I set my heart up in opposition to his purpose, I am then dealing with what the scriptures call sternness. Or in Romans, the second chapter, the wrath of God. But this passage of scripture begs to be interpreted by the gospel. Let me just share quickly the basic hermeneutical principle that I always function with as I teach and preach, and that is that the Apostle Paul and the writers of the New Testament have to always be interpreted by Jesus and not the other way around. In other words, I don't go to Paul and say, what did Jesus mean? I go to Jesus and Paul helps explain. But Jesus is my source. He's my savior. And he's our head. Paul's only one of those fingers or hands. He may be a foot. Jesus is the head. So let's go to the book of John and look again for a few minutes at John the 15th chapter where where Paul's really drawing from a primary source the material he's sharing with us in Romans 11. Jesus says, John the 15th chapter, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Or I could... Speak it this way. He cuts off every person from Christ who bears no righteousness. That's what he's saying. Righteousness is a fruit. Specifically, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, that's all righteousness. Remember the definition of righteousness is innocence. That's the Greek definition for righteousness, innocence, purity. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit He prunes. Why does he prune? 
because there are some things you can't grow out of. They just have to be cut off. No one ever grew into purity. My dirty shorts would never grow into purity. They had to face the radical washing. They had to have the dirt removed, cut off, separated. In our hearts, there has to be a cutting off. The first work that God does, he comes and he says, will you cut that off? And we say, let's talk about that. That can't really be the Holy Spirit saying, cut that off. After all, I'm a man. Expected to be responsible. Cut it off, Ray. I mean, I still experience withdrawal pain sometimes when I think about God cutting me off from the entertainment of this world. Sometimes my heart just hungers to go sit down and watch a violent movie. Now, I know you gals are not into that. But it's a man thing. No, you've got to go sit in the the place and watch the violence. You know what? I know if I would respond to that and do it, probably sit there and weep. I know that's not where my heart is anymore. I know God changed me. He took the anger from my spirit. I'm not an angry man anymore. I don't have even hidden anger in my soul. It's just gone. He washed it out of me. He pruned it. And with the pruning of that anger, he pruned the things that fed my anger. So do I want to go watch a violent movie? No. The devil occasionally will walk back by and say, hey, remember when? Out of here, Satan, in the name of Jesus. Or a violent video game. You know, where you can really get into the action. Foolishness. Holy Spirit wants to cut those things off. Now, Because we're a value-added people, we immediately are inclined to say, look what God is trying to take from me. Look what God's trying to steal from me. I bear testimony today, God has never asked me for anything without giving me something much better in its place. God has never once cheated me. He has never once asked me to give him something that was healthy. He only pruned off my life disease, sickness. Violence is sickness. 
anger and bitterness is sickness. He pruned that off my life. Another not so readily talked about issue he's been consistently cutting off my life, and every time a green shoot appears, it's as though there's just not even a split second. He just goes for it. You know, God doesn't prune a garden and then leave it for a month. He's always right there, just watching. And one of the issues he's had to prune from my life, time after time after time, is the manly sense of accomplishment. What I really want is to be able to look back at my life and say, yes, I provided for my family. Yes, I've accomplished these things. Yes, I've made these contributions for the betterment of society. As soon as I begin to think in those terms, I've assumed that I am the root and God is the branch. And he won't tolerate it. So quickly he comes and he snips it off. And he says, don't go there. Be humble. Be self-effacing. Give up your pride. Then he says the most astonishing statement in verse 3. You are already clean. He's speaking to his disciples. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. Did you get the great big neon sign? The word that he spoke to them that cleaned them was a word that said, remain in me, abide in me. So what he removed from them was the temptation or the desire to be separate from Jesus, to be independent. Well, that reminds me, in way of review, what we talked about on Thursday evening in Luke, the ninth chapter. Verse 23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny, he must disown, he must lose sight of self-interest, he must disown himself and take up his cross, he must weigh anchor, he must cut himself loose from everything that holds his life steady, he must cut it off. And he must follow me. And this is a daily process. This is a constant 24-hour process. From Thursday night until today, the Lord's been pointing out to me some areas where he has not asked me to go in inquiry, but I've wanted to go because I've wanted more information. 
He said to me, why are you doing this? He's allowed to ask me why questions. I'm not allowed to ask him why questions. What's that about, Ray? Very kindly, very mercifully. Anything that I begin to move into that anchors me in this world and prevents me from coming into agreement with the revealed will of God will block me in the path of heaven. So this is the word he was speaking to his disciples from which he said, I spoke the word and now you're clean. In other words, by this point, the disciples have cut loose all their anchors. They're now totally centered in the will of God. They're no longer going out on their own as independent agents. They're now abiding in Jesus. Now, for some of you who are new, I need to say just a word about this abiding. Abiding always begins in the life of a Christian in very simple ways. The Lord may say, would you come and spend time with me and would you read 10 chapters of scripture each day? Or will you read 20 pages of scripture each day? Whatever whatever it is, the Holy Spirit prompts you. And you say, yes, I'll do that. And then as you consistently do that, that becomes for you a place of abiding. It becomes a place where you are anchored into Jesus Christ. When he said to me, Ray, turn your television off. And I said, yes, Lord. When I stopped watching television, that became for me an abiding place. And the Holy Spirit meets us in those places of abiding that he has established for us. Those are the initial contact points between our heart and God's heart. And if we say no to those abiding places, he will not take us any deeper into himself because he can't trust us. As we said Thursday night, trust is not given. Salvation is given. Trust is earned. So in relationship with God, as he says to me, would you do this? And I say yes. I then begin to enter into a place of abiding with him so that I can grow up in Jesus. A place of abiding for me is that I will not turn in discouragement and question what I'm doing with God. Now that may seem like a very little thing to you, but it's been huge for me. How many times I have said to my wife, look, how long are we going to do this? Why don't we go use our lives and do something worthwhile? You know what, I can't say that anymore. Because I don't have an agenda to be worthwhile anymore. 
God took away my desire to be worthwhile. What I desire now is to be with Jesus. So part of the place of abiding that we've covenanted together, Jan and I have covenanted together, to hold each other firmly accountable in, is that we will never second-guess God on what he's doing with the National Prayer Chapel. We will simply walk faithfully before the Lord. And if you come to us and say, I'm sorry, I can't do this, we'll say we love you, bye. Because we're going to walk straight until our feet reach heaven. We're not going to turn to the left or to the right. Those who go with us, we will walk with. Those who don't go with us, we won't walk with. So some of you have said to me, have you, have you gone and, and talked with so-and-so who's not with us anymore? No, I haven't. I'm not going to. They left. I didn't. In other words, I'm on a journey. The rich young ruler, did, do you find anywhere in Scripture where Jesus constantly went over and tried to find the rich young ruler? But it says Jesus loved him. Why? Because the path of the rich young ruler led down a road that Jesus was not willing to walk. Jesus had his eyes fixed on Golgotha. Jesus was going to Calvary. From there, he was going to heaven to the most holy compartment of the heavenly sanctuary where the command center was set up for our salvation. And now his full-time work sent his help and his aid to those who have been destined for salvation. Well, I don't want to be pulled aside from that walk. So regardless of the cost, financial, time, energy, Ken and I have made a covenant with God. We are going to walk faithfully before him, and no one and nothing is going to turn us aside from that firm, measured step as we pursue the course that we know is the heart of God and the revealed will of God. Now, that may sound narrow or hard to some of you. It's not. It's called a narrow path in Scripture. But did you know the narrow path is really quite broad? And the broad way is very narrow? Have you ever looked at that? Have you looked at the bondage that a sinner walks in? They have a very small place to walk called their rebellion, called confusion, called selfishness and bitterness and anger. It's a very narrow path they have to walk, even though it's the broad way. But for those who walk the narrow path with Jesus, I love C.S. Lewis when he says, 
about this shed right at the end of time in his, in his Narnia trilogy. There's a, there's a shed right at the end of time. It says it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. What we're looking at is the, the glorious wideness of God's love. The glorious broadness of the mercy of God. Poured out without measure for us. And he invites us to come and walk in. To the world it looks very narrow. But you would not find a holy angel who would say it was narrow. Them, it's where they walk every day. It's freedom. It's joy. It's life. It's serving the Most High God. So he says, You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Boy, he wants to be very clear that we know our place. Okay, honest up. This last week, have you been living like a vine or a branch? Have you been living like you're the source? You'll set your own schedule. You'll go where you want to go. You'll produce what you want to produce. Have you been assuming the position that you're the vine? Have you been this week a branch? Now, there are two kinds of branches. Jesus is speaking about two kinds of branches. Paul in Romans the 11th chapter speaking about two kinds of branches. Those that are broken off and those that are grafted in. He says the ones that are broken off die, they wither, and they're burned. Those that are grafted in taste of the nourishing sap. They have a hidden source of resource. They have a hidden source of strength. They have a hidden source of life and power, and it flows up in them, and it produces fruit, righteousness. So first I have to ask you, have you last week thought of yourself as a, as a vine or a branch? And then secondly, I have to ask you, are you grafted in or are you broken off? You're broken off if you're not in agreement with the revealed will of God. If you're not standing by faith that God will do what he's revealed, it is his will to do. You understand this works at every level. For the new Christian who is saying, I want to follow Jesus, 
you know the revealed will of God is that he wants to save you, he wants to wash you, he wants to make you clean, he wants to establish you, and so he carefully bandages you into the tree. And then there's the old timer who's been walking, who's been walking, who's been walking, and the sap is flowing freely in their lives. But the outside may look like it has been absolutely stripped of everything. Have you ever seen a, a vineyard spring just after it's been stripped? All you have are these dry, knobby, fine heads poking up with wires running. Not even a green shoot. Some of you today feel like that. I'll be honest, sort of how I feel. I've been pruned until I bleed. When you first come to Jesus, you're carefully bandaged. You're treated very gently. Because it's important that you be established and settled in Jesus. But the further you go down the road, the more intense is the pruning process. Because the Lord is not interested in foliage. He's interested in Now, I'm interested in foliage to cover my nakedness and make me look like I'm very productive. God's not interested in foliage. He's interested in fruit. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch, verse 6, that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The revealed will of God is that he wants every one of us to bear much fruit. He wants us to bear much love, much peace, much joy. He wants us to bear much righteousness. And he wants us to bear much fruit in terms of the salvation of the lost and the dying. And this is going to require coming into agreement with God with all of our money, all of our time, all of our energy and allowing him to prune that up any way he chooses to. And for some of us, it's been quite severe. And instead of growing downhearted about that, the Lord has said to me, lift up your hands and rejoice in my pruning. Because the disease has been cut off.
So you have to decide now today, are you going to try to take what I've given you and keep everything else you had when you walked in? In that case, you're going to leave heavier than you were when you came in. You're going to feel more confused and more convicted and feel worse. Your misery quotient will be highly elevated. And I'll agree with you and ask that God will make you even more miserable this week. That's what's called conviction. Or you can leave this house today with some things cut off your life. Ambition, selfishness, independence, self-importance. Let God cut those things off very kindly. Let him just cut those off your heart and your life. And in that case, you can walk out of here with a heart full of faith, saying, Jesus, I don't understand everything Pastor Ray said, but I don't need to. I just understand you love me, and you're going to continue to deal with me, and you're going to bring me through to victory. And I'm going to agree with you what you're going to do. You notice that nowhere in the scripture that I've shared with you does it say, that the branch prunes itself. Did you notice that? So there's no beating yourself up here. Work of God. Trust the work of God. Trust the work of God in your heart, in your family, with your friends. Trust the work of God. Because he's the pruner. Father's the pruner. He's the gardener. Lord, I would that every man and woman in this house would leave light today, rejoicing and knowing that you are a God who is faithful, in agreement with you, Jesus, that what your will is is what our will is, that we agree with you, Lord, Even if it means we agree through tears, we will agree with you. And we will wait upon you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name.